There's an endless diversity of startup ideas in Portland, but they all have one thing in common. They need capital to launch. Luckily, not only does our city have a robust startup scene, but we're also innovative about gathering funds. Portland has raised tens of millions of dollars in Kickstarter funds alone. And we're home to many microloan, venture capital, and angel investor programs. These sources of capital are foundational to keeping Portland a startup city. The question then arises, how do we keep the money circulating? And how can entrepreneurs get access to it? Welcome to Biz 503, where today's topic is access to capital. I'm Mark Grimes of NedSpace, co-hosting with Stephen Green of Elevate Capital. We'll lead a series of discussions on where to find startup money in the city and how to keep it flowing in. Joining us is an expert panel of guests who will give us an overview of different ways entrepreneurs can access funds. Noah Brockman, Capital Access Team Lead at Oregon Small Business Development Center Network. Mike Rogaway, writer with The Oregonian. And Morgan Masterman, Microenterprise and Small Business Development Program at PDC. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Hi, thanks for having us. Good to be here. All right, Noah, we're going to start off with you. Tell us why we should care about the work you're doing over at the Capital Access Team at SBDC. Well, really, we're just helping small businesses uh, get more funding. You know, it's easy for a business to say, hey, we want to grow this year, we want to start this year, but chances are they've probably not gone through the the funding cycle, and chances are they, they haven't. They probably don't know what's available in terms of sources of capital out there, and it's such a dynamic landscape as it is that it's changing year over year. So working with us, they have an opportunity to work with a guide, take them through the entire process, develop a finance strategy, seek out sources of capital that are a good fit for their projects. In many cases, get introductions to lenders or investors that we know might be a good fit based on that type of project. Can you guys kind of unpack for our listeners the different types of business startup financing available from VC to debt, equity, convertible notes? If you just start with debt, you know, there's there's micro lenders in town and statewide that you know, provide access to micro loans, typically twenty-five to fifty thousand or less. Oftentimes, those interest rates will be higher because they're higher risk loans. You've got your traditional bank loans and credit union loans that. In some cases are conventional, which means they're typically the best priced debt financing out there for small business. And then for small businesses that are having, well, if a lender is feeling like, you know, we'd like to do this loan, we want to get them over the hump, but uh, it's going to take a little extra. That's where loan guarantee programs come in, whether it's an SBA loan guarantee or Business Oregon's loan guarantee program. So that's where the, or USDA if it's in a rural area. So lots of loan guarantee programs that help banks and um, credit unions do loans. And then, you know, fortunately in the metro area, metro area well in Oregon, there's, there's five angel funds. Uh, there's the Portland Seed Fund for micro equity seed investments. And now we've got a new fund. I'm sure uh, Stephen Green will talk a little bit about that, but um, uh, in partnership with PDC. So there's no shortage of capital, whether it's debt or equity. And then you've got private equity firms, venture capital firms, not quite as many in Oregon as you do in other places like the state of Washington, California. But I think, you know, there's a lot of options, a lot of sources here in our state especially in the metro area. Great. Now, Morgan, we know uh, at PDC, we're, we're typically hearing about real estate projects, the post office, Portland Mercado. 
But for you, you lead an interesting program that actually spends millions of dollars each year supporting small micro businesses all over the city. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at at PDC and also uh, how you guys are facilitating getting access to capital to businesses? Sure, yeah. So the Microenterprise and Small Business Development Program really focuses on serving existing businesses and folks who are interested in starting a business but are are very small. Microenterprise is defined as someone who's one, one person or up to five employees and and we work with them, connecting them to um, several nonprofits throughout town that provide one-on-one tailored technical assistance, co- could cover anything from marketing, creation of a business plan, helping them to become loan ready if that's appropriate for where they're at in their business, helping them with credit, build credit or repair bad credit. Those sorts of programs are, are what we're working with. We're really focusing on providing services to disadvantaged businesses in the city. So we're focusing on helping close equity gaps and working with communities of color, low-income business owners, and those folks in uh, certain neighborhoods in, in Portland that have, um, haven't been typically served by the city in the past. Which is fantastic, because back in the day, like 10 years ago or more, PDC was about kind of building construction and awning betterment, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, how what, what evolved in, in that to now make it realizing they need to dig deeper into helping these entrepreneurs and and founders and small businesses. Yeah, I think with our new strategic plan, it really focuses on closing that equity gap and trying to build wealth within the communities of color and other disadvantaged communities. And I think, you know, we've gotten smarter over the the last 10 years, certainly the last 50 years, when the Portland Development Commission operated very much differently than it does today. We're very much more focused on economic development and community economic development now. And we certainly still have a robust neighborhood and central city development departments with some great work happening there. But we've become, you know, we've become more aware of the situation that there are a lot of barriers that disadvantaged businesses are facing and they don't have as much access to certain products and services um, as the dominant culture does. And we'd like to try to help fix that if we can and by offering these programs and prioritizing them for those folks. So Mike, you get to be a, a storyteller and talk about these amazing startups and founders that we have here in the city. Tell us a little about what about what you hear from them about access to capital. Well, it's a dramatically different story, Stephen, than it was ten years ago or fifteen years ago. Part of part of what I, I think we should define first is is what a startup is, and a startup is conventionally a high growth company, it's a company that has really huge ambitions. I think in Oregon we tend to think of a startup a little bit differently, more as a any kind of entrepreneurship, any kind of small business can be a startup too. I think by historic standards this is a really good time to be having a startup. Interest rates remain low and we have more venture capital flowing into as Noah said, we don't have a lot of investment funds within the state, but we have more flowing into the state than we've had in a long time. Two hundred and twenty six million by one count last year, which doesn't measure up very well against Washington or, or California, but compared to Oregon's historical standards, it's it's doing very well. So we have a cluster of pretty well-known companies like Urban Airship and Puppet Labs and Acton Software that have gotten big rounds, and then sort of a, a next generation of companies like Supproved, which are Opal Labs, Linux, are posting bigger rounds now in the startup community. And then below that, you have several smaller sort of tiers of funding, starting with, as Noah mentioned, all the all the angel funds and micro-equity investors 
investors, things like the Oregon Angel Fund, which has been every year substantially increasing the amount it invests, and then new things like Elevate, 10 Branch, some of the money that's come from selling companies in the state that have done well is is going back into new companies. What do you think that we need to do as a startup community to attract more funds? I mean, like you said, we're kind of behind Seattle, behind the Barrie, always are. We've always been that kind of flyover city. What's that going to take? So, except in, in really bad economic times, I think, you know, good startups, good classic startups with really big ambitions, they tend to get funded. They attract the money. The issue, as Noah and Morgan have said, is people who haven't traditionally had access to capital. And I think that's where we still see a, a big gap is, and that, that may be something that the lack of local wealth has contributed to, is that if you're if you're not connected to that really big pipeline, it's sort of hard to find other avenues to generate it. I think one of the other things that we, we don't think about or talk about is that a dollar in, in the Bay Area is not a dollar in Portland. And so we can't compare it to apples to apples. Portland's a lot more capital efficient when it comes to using capital here. You know, we, we don't, we're never going to see the amount of VC capital spent here as you see in the Bay Area or Seattle. And it's because it's, it's cheaper to run a business here. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things is we're also seeing the growth of crowdfunding. Portland is the number three city in the country for Kickstarter investments and crowdfunding just outpaced venture capital nationally for the first time this year. So I think what you're seeing is entrepreneurs finding people like Noah that help them understand the difference between, you know, having a business and, and knowing a trade and growing that business and knowing the, the multitude of tools to be able to utilize in order to put gas in the tank for those businesses. Yeah, crowdfunding has definitely come on strong recently in the past few years and both nationally, but also obviously here in Oregon. Some listeners may may well know or others may not, but in January 2015, Oregon, I think, was the 17th state in the nation to pass rules or law. And in our case, they were uh, rules that allowed small that allow small businesses to raise up to 250,000 either via debt or equity. And uh, in Oregon, we call those the community public offering rules. And so that that has created a, a new vehicle for small businesses that are small business owners, entrepreneurs that either couldn't get access to capital by any of the traditional or non-traditional means, as well as folks that just wanted to do something different because they wanted to write their own deal, which is what they're doing. They're writing their own deal. Now, you know, some of the challenges with that is if they're a startup already, they have to educate people, potential investors about the community public offering rules as well as their business. So that could be kind of tough. If they're an existing business, they have a following. It may be a little easier in some cases as we've seen across the state, we've had a few success stories. Red Wagon Creamery in Eugene, they think they raised their maximum, and they were the first company in Oregon using the community public offering rules to um, hit their minimum. So we were all excited for them to see that. And there are other companies doing the same. So I think I think it's going to be a good tool, and especially as people, investors, any Oregon resident can invest up to $2,500 a year using these rules. Um, as people get more familiar, more comfortable with it, I, I think we'll see more uh, utilization. That's great. So I think Stephen would agree that in general, we talk to a lot of startup founders and entrepreneurs, and for the most part, they really shouldn't be raising money. They shouldn't be trying to go for seed fund or angel funding. They should be trying to grow a real business, because ultimately, even if you do raise a million dollars, it still has to become a real business. That's not the win. Getting the money isn't the win. Growing the real business is the win. What are some of the mistakes that that you guys see startup founders make in trying to raise funding? Common mistakes. Common mistakes are signing the lease before lining up the financing. Then they're really on the hook to get the financing through. And if it doesn't happen, 
boy, that's that's a real problem to try and solve. Other mistakes, having financing lined up and whether it's the funder or the borrower not having done the final due diligence, you may have a gap lender drop out of the deal and, you know, unexpectedly, now you have a gap that you thought was covered in your deal that's totally gone away. It's dissolved and now you have to try and make up, you know, make up that difference. So the better you can kind of nail things down and do the due diligence. Yeah. Okay. Morgan, have you seen some other kind of common mistakes with companies? I would say I probably have less to add there around common mistakes, but I do, um, I can talk to, I think, some of the barriers that people face around trying to access capital. And I think one of the biggest ones is probably credit history. With the businesses that we're working with, a lot of them don't have any credit history. Some of them are fairly new to the U.S. and don't have that that backlog of, of credit. Others have had, you know, bad debts in the past and are trying to work to improve that. And so we've got several programs in town that, off, that can offer support around improving credit to try to get them to be bankable. I would say that's the that's the the end goal if that's what's appropriate for the business. So that I think is probably one one of the things that folks can kind of watch out for is really making sure you understand what what you can do to help improve your credit and what things to stay away from. I think one of the other things is and this is kind of a con- contrarian point I think is that as a founder you you quant you quantify things and you focus on things that are quantifiable. And so it's it's easy to say progress is being made if I I'm raising money or if I got a big loan and we celebrate that but we don't celebrate people that bootstrap we don't celebrate companies like Grove made that have millions of dollars in revenues and have never gotten a loan before and I think for a lot of entrepreneurs money's getting so easy to get that they look at whether I was able to get a loan whether I was able to get a grant whether I was able to get you know an investor to write me a check as this validation of what they're doing as opposed to understanding that being able to get access to capital is the number four reason and businesses fail. The number one reason they fail is there isn't a market out there to buy what you're trying to sell. Number three is actually growth, uncontrolled growth. And we could, we should be having a show on, you know, how do you find your market? Right. But, you know, it's, it's great to focus on the money. And, you know, that's one of the things that in this mix of Kickstarter, crowd supply, the CPO that we're not talking about is we're making it easier to, to get access to those funds, which I think takes a lot of entrepreneurs' eye off of the ball of, am I building a great business? You know, it's, it's interesting talking about crowdfunding. We've had three really big success stories in terms of dollars raised in crowdfunding, but none of them were successes in business. You look at the Elevation Doc, you look at the Coolest Cooler or the people behind the, the Ruka speech. Carbon Audio, they all got overwhelmed by their businesses, two of them for the same reason. The demand was just more than they could possibly meet. It all sounded really good on paper, but Stephen, you say uncontrolled growth is, is one of the issues. I think if you're going to go the crowdfunding way, you really need to understand what you're getting into and sort of map out what you want from it and what you don't. Kickstarter is made for projects. It's not made to build businesses. And, and I think, you know, we're going to be hearing later today from one of the local firms that I think helps makers scale appropriately and, and helps them understand one of the fundamental things things about being a, an entrepreneur and that's you don't know what you don't know. And I think, you know, the coolest cooler, that's a great project, but with limitations of manufacturing, I don't think they were able to capitalize on, on building a really great business. But Kickstarter worked the exact way it, it was supposed to. Supposed to that exactly. was a successful project. It just doesn't make for a successful business all the time. Well, and I think a lot of times when people are out raising money, maybe they're not thinking about what type of business they want to build, what success looks like. They may have some sort of broad idea. And I think when you go out, choose the kind of funding that's appropriate for the kind of business you want to build 
world and see see how well those two match up. I think sometimes too they spin their businesses to fit the categories that may be hot for funding. You know, athletic apparel, tech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, whereas a lot of people poo poo food startups, which you know. Dave's Killer Bread had a pretty decent exit. I mean, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Got a $3 billion company on the coast that makes cheese. Yeah, and I, I think that's something else to be considering is, you know, if you are building a food-style business, do you really want an equity investor um, and give away a substantial share of your business when you may not need that kind of funding? Um, maybe borrowing a little bit of money is fine. You've got some assets and some collateral probably. So I think that's the great thing about having someone like Noah and what they do over at his team is helping people understand the, the multitude of tools that are out there and which one fits the time horizon and and really the plan for the business. So what's uh, what are you guys seeing kind of in the in the near future that uh, are some exciting exciting things with your companies and related to access to capital. Any any uh, any changes coming that you can share with listeners? Changes are coming. I mean, I can share that. I think I, I think I can share that. I, I, it's it's great to see folks not only from the banking community and the philanthropy community, but also VCs come and say, "Wow, you know, um, the people that we're backing don't have to be males that are generally white, generally you know, forty to sixty years old, and we have this amazing pool of talent that we know we can pull from that doesn't look like that." And being very intentional and active about that. Yeah, I think in terms of some uh, newer products available, PDC just launched the inclusive startup fund and obviously Steven's been involved in a lot of that and can probably talk about the specifics around that but that's a really exciting product that's going to be available to minority business founders and we've also been able to be pretty nimble I would say in the last few years with some products that we're working with our partners on and we've got a mini micro loan program that we're working with micro enterprise services of Oregon on which provides 100 to 2500 dollars to businesses on a pretty quick time frame and it's really perfect its purpose is really to, um, again, focus on that credit building aspect. And so we've been able to kind of come up with some products that are really out there to meet the needs of some gaps that we've found w- with the clients that we're working with. I'll tell you what I'm watching is we, we had $44 billion in, in, in deals, more than that, for Oregon companies last year. A lot of that money went to out-of-state investors, but some of it came back into the state. And I'm really curious if over the next three to five years, if we'll see some of that come back into other companies. I think there's a, se- a segment of it that we certainly will see come back. And that could begin to change the local funding picture and make the state less reliant on finding, you know, sort of big investments from outside the state. I think that local funding model is probably better suited for smaller, more modest investments. I mean, we're definitely seeing local founders that have had exits that are getting reinvolved both in terms of other startup companies and putting money back into companies themselves. Just like, yeah, exactly. Well, it's clear there's no shortage of ways to access capital in Portland. And next, we'll hear from a group of entrepreneurs about their experiences gathering funds when we come back. Welcome back to Biz 503 and Portland Radio Project. I'm Mark Grimes of NetSpace, hosting Biz 503 today with Stephen Green of Elevate Capital. Today's show is all about the Benjamins, baby, where entrepreneurs can find the funds they need to make their startups' dreams a reality. In our last segment, we learned from some of our guests about some of the ways folks can gather capital in Portland. And now we're going to hear stories from folks who did exactly that and what their experience was like. Welcome to uh, Daryl Ness, president, founder of Feathered Nest Public House. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. And Chris Lyon, director of operations at Mudshark Studios. Hello. 
Right, thanks for joining us today, guys. So funding a food and beverage business, ouch. Can you, uh, as you launch Nest, uh, can you tell listeners some of the story, warts and all, as you went into the funding process for that? Well, I uh, kind of backed into the funding process, the traditional, because I assumed that no one would touch it. Good, so good planning. <laughs> yeah, I assumed the worst. And then I got interested in the, the new crowdfunding rules in Oregon and considered that. And that was that was exactly what I needed because in order to even talk to that, to enter that process, I had to deal with, go through a guy named Noah Brockman, who I think you know. And that really was the, he led me through the process from that point on. First thing he did was tell me that I actually was a candidate for a traditional loan, which shocked me. I still remember you wow. know, when he told me that. But there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of work to be done. I'd never, I've had several businesses, but I never had to write a formal business plan and I never had to go through a, a coach who you know, kept sending me back to the table to to improve it. But he also, most importantly, he lent me, He and after that, he introduced me to lenders. Okay. So so you've done traditional businesses in the past, and this is your first experience in kind of a crowdfunding model. Or of any, of getting outside funding. Of getting outside funding. I've okay. always managed to scrimp yeah, and yeah. make it work out of pocket. Okay. So what were the biggest differences for you in doing that, really? Oh, I'm being accountable to the world. I mean, I, you know, I can I can keep my business plan in the back of my head if I'm doing it all myself. But I didn't want, I, I consciously didn't want to do that this time. I wanted to do it right, lay it out, and get vetted by outside counsel, if you will, with uh, NOAA and and then just as importantly with uh, Albina Bank, who it, in the end funded me. Perfect. Awesome. So, Chris, you and Brett have an amazing story that I've been lucky enough to be part of the journey for for five plus years. You've heard yes, you've heard no, uh, you've worked with private lenders, you've worked with the city, you've worked with you know, organizations like Oregon Manufacturers Extension Partnership. Give someone the, the, the quick and dirty of, of what it's been like for you and your partner. Well, it has been a process, but uh, one that we started five years ago, working with NOAA at the Capital Access Team. When I first met NOAA, I had a 18-page business plan held together with a paperclip <laughs> and um, couldn't figure out why none of the banks would give us a loan. After working with NOAA for about six months, I I ended up with a 50-page business plan with over 450 pages of documentation in a five-inch binder. So we dropped those on a few desks around town and uh, started getting calls. It was really exciting. So at the end of that week, we had two different offers, and we ended up working with Albina on our credit line and the PDC for an equipment loan. So Noah's the magic man when it comes to getting money in town, listeners. I I think um, (laughs) the story of Mud Shark is really the story of, of entrepreneurs knowing how to work in the business and being amazing craftspeople mm-hmm. and no one ever pushing them to work on the business and how to articulate and tell that story. Right. And, and I think that's, that's, that's the key to understanding how to grow a business because it's easy to be the person that's you know, making the stuff in the back. It's different once you're hiring folks, once you're in the office and you're not on the floor. And I think that's been a big piece of, of, of the success that, that Mud Shark Studios had is, is the, the founders being able to ha- manage that transition and know that you have to spend time in both of those worlds. And I think most people have a huge time trouble with that transition because they love doing the thing they do. They love doing the ceramics work. But when it comes to, you know, what do you mean you want a healthcare plan or whatever when you're dealing with staff, it's a whole different animal. Love the Mud Shark logo a lot. Can you describe the that kind of learning about getting out of the business of 
having your hands in the, cer- the ceramic work and actually growing the business? Like, what were your biggest challenges? And in- sure, well, yeah, it was really difficult in the beginning to kind of give out, uh, give up that control. Both Brett and I are potters as our background, and we loved making ceramic work. And now we spend our day in the offices, you know, running numbers and doing quotes and uh, trying to figure out, yeah, how to grow the business. So yeah, it was a little scary at first, giving up control, trying to figure out how to build middle management uh, in an efficient way so that, you know, we could trust our managers to um, to get the projects moving through the system. And so we started working with a lean manufacturer to come in and help create some policies and procedures and protocols. Like when we first started the business, we, we grew from six employees to 26 employees in nine months. And we didn't have a simple employee handbook and couldn't understand why, you know, people weren't showing up on time and <laughs> were taking days off. And so... You know, we just started having to implement, uh, you know, an attendance policy and just kind of simple things, but just had to write it down and give that information to the employees. And so that was, you know, a little tricky in the beginning. But as we've grown, we, you know, we have a, a great team now and um, you know, we've really worked on building that middle management so that, you know, the, the company can can grow without Brett and I putting in 90 hours a week. Down to 80, right? Yeah, about that. So you guys both mentioned Albina Community Bank. Daryl, can you chime in? Because I think most of our listeners just assume a a bank's a bank's a bank's a bank. Why do you feel that that, um, they said yes when others may have said no? And and how were they different than uh, what were some surprises in working with them that you didn't know were going to happen? Well, they're really unlike any bank I've dealt with before. I've dealt with big banks and over my different businesses, I've dealt with any number of them. And I've never seen anybody who was, would we be willing to loan me money on, a, on an idea. I mean, they want asset-backed loans. And there's, they make it very clear they're not in there to, for, to better the world. They're in there to maximize profit. And Albina, as corny as it sounds, is, is really a different animal. And they, they invest in the community. And it's, they take, that's their focus, as far as I can tell, is investing in the community. And they saw merit in what we were doing, and I was so happy they did. So they're, I mean, they bought into our vision. They did just bet, lend us money based on the fact they could pretty much guarantee we'd pay it back. That was what was different. With some of the other lending institutions that didn't loan you guys money or looked at the business plan, be it the 18-page paperclip or whatever, what's some of the more shocking feedback that you got from them that may have been eye-opening? I mean, maybe it wasn't on, on target, you felt, but what was uh, what were some of the things you guys had both heard? The first bank we talked to said that it probably wasn't a good idea for us to grow. The numbers weren't really working out, so we were a little dis- uh, discouraged by that. And Noah told us, hey, go home over the weekend. This was a conservative lender we brought you guys to. We're going to go talk to some less conservative lenders. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. But it's funny now because some of those people that wouldn't talk to us five years ago are now knocking on the door and want to talk to us. So, yeah, we've we've worked hard. And I think one of the, the fascinating things after being 20 years in, in finance and, and working at, you know, Albina Community Bank, but also the largest bank in Portland and Bank of the West is for an entrepreneur, you need to understand who your audience is, and you can't take one interaction with a bank and paint all the other lenders or all the other VC companies with that broad brush. There's a great website called Biz2Credit, and they uh, are a portal for people to apply for small business loans through their website, and they work with thousands of lenders, and they release data each year about how the different lenders are doing. And for lenders like Albina Community Bank, which they would consider an alternative lender, they approve almost 70% of their loans. But for big banks, on working through that website, they only approve about 20% of the loans. So if you're a business owner and you knew 
before you even walked in the door and talked to somebody, I got a 70% chance in that door. I got a 20% chance in that door, along with these other special things you guys are talking about, relationship, knowledge of the market that others may not have. It's uh, That's really empowering stuff when you're going on that journey to to find capital and, and, and you know work with, work with tools. And does that mean that they're looking at kind of better vetted deals that are coming in the door or are they just a little more open with with their terms or what is why is that so as far as i can tell the the, the best thing i can the way i can explain it is you know local banks like albina community bank pacific continental they have deep entrenched relationships here not only with staff but also leadership so chris has met the president of albina bank on a number of occasions so when you have that kind of intentional interaction with not only your employees but also leadership at a bank i think it leads to banks that aren't necessarily taking on more risk and are not necessarily less conservative. They just have more deeper in-depth knowledge at a management level about what's going on in their market. And so something that may be riskier to a bank that's less connected with the community for a bank that's locally here where all the decisions are here, they're like, oh no, we, we know Portland. That, that, that'll, that'll work. That'll it's about work. localization, right? Yeah. Okay. How long has, this is coming off the talk boards here, how long has Mudshark been in business? And when did you first feel confident that you guys were going to actually make it? And make sure you mentioned Martha Stewart. Well, we started Mudshark in 2006 in a 400 square foot basement. Um, It was just my business partner and I. And from there, we moved into a residential garage, really stepped it up and operated out of there with four employees for about three years. And then moved into our current location around 2010. Stephen mentioned Martha Stewart. That was probably the the point where, for my mother at least, uh, she realized (laughs) that I had a real business. Martha Stewart recognized our company as um, one of the rising stars in the American craft industry. And it was the first year she started the uh, American Made Awards. So we got flown out to New York City for a weekend wow. and she had a big uh, event in Grand Central Station where she honored us and 10 other companies. And yeah, so it put us on the map kind of nationally. We got to be in Martha Stewart Living and we still hold some of those connections with the Martha Stewart team over there. And it, it brought more business our way, obviously. And uh, like I said, my my mom really realized that uh, with that Martha stamp of approval, she... It was the she, real deal. Yeah, it, you was, were it legit. was the real deal. Yeah. 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 That's great. Once you saw the sales spike, did it I mean, obviously it didn't maintain, but did it did it stay at an elevated level for quite some time? Well, honestly, at that point, we were still really busy to the point where, you know, the uh, added publicity of the Martha Stewart was great, but it did the increased uh, calls and inquiries on new projects really, really became an issue and trying to figure out how to plan for more capacity. And that's kind of what we've been working on for the last couple of years is is how to grow the business in the current space we're in and become more efficient and, and operate at a higher level. So Daryl, you're getting ready to you're getting ready to open. Tell us a little bit about you know where you're spending the money that you got for access to capital, and um, why does Portland need another brew pub? Well, let's see. Those are two different questions. Yeah, I'm the money's getting spread around real well around Portland. Got a lot of friends, a lot of new friends now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but wherever I can tell you this is wherever we can as we walk around as we source products and build relationships with service providers. We're, we're working with local companies wherever we can, wherever that's a viable option. So that's a part of our consciousness that we didn't just take the money and shoot it off to somewhere else and, you know, sign up with all the, uh, you know, sell Budweiser. So, but, you know, Portland, everybody needs a new brew, brew pub, first of all. But beyond that, we've got a very unique location. And um, we're located on Markham Hill right behind OHSU. And the hill, there's, there's very little retail up there. Plaid Pantry would be the highlight. Wow. 
and we feel like we can provide an alternative to cafeteria food for the 20,000 people who work up there every day and plus the families. So, and I think we're going to be a unique type of place. Awesome. We really appreciate you guys spending some time with us today. As we just heard from Chris and Daryl, there's more than one way gathering enough capital to launch a startup. You just have to know where to find it, whom to ask. We'll talk with folks with advice on those things and more after a short break. You're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Tune in Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. at 99.1 FM for a live broadcast of the show or stream us online at prp.fm. Thanks to our sponsor, PCC Climb. PCC Climb delivers professional training and business development backed by the experience and size of PCC. Wherever you are in your career, Climb can help you take the next step up. Welcome back. I'm Stephen Green of Elevate Capital, co-hosting Biz 503 today with Mark Grimes of NetSpace. Today's topic is access to capital. We've been discussing Portland's economic ecosystem and how entrepreneurs can track down the capital they need to get started in business. In this final segment, we'll zoom in on resources already in place in Portland and what hopeful startup founders can do to connect with them. We're welcoming to the table three of my favorite people when it comes to helping entrepreneurs here in the city. Noah Brockman, Capital Access Team Lead at Oregon SBDC Network. Joshua Lifton, Founder and CEO of Crowd Supply, And Morgan Masterman, Microenterprise and Small Business Development Program at Portland Development Commission. Joshua, let's start with you. Tell us about CrowdSupply. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Mark. CrowdSupply is a curated crowdfunding platform for physical manufactured goods. We not only help people raise the money they need to for that first batch, that first production batch, but also do a lot of the logistics around it, such as fulfillment and marketing and sales afterward, strategy, that sort of thing. We've been around for a few years now. We've brought over 100 products to market and have the highest average funding rate and success rate of any platform out there. CrowdSupply is a fantastic local Portland resource. Can you describe, Joshua, the kind of step function as to how when you help people raise money, how it's significantly different than some of the other out there like uh, Kickstarter? Sure. Well, we're very hands-on, first of all. So, uh, And as I said, it's, it's highly curated. And so you have to meet certain criteria before you launch and those criteria are designed to help you succeed so it's simple things practical things like having a good plan to get the money that you're asking for and we can help craft that plan having a good plan for spending the money that you get once you have it for for manufacturing and then there are more philosophical things which go hand in hand i think such as being you know commitment to your having commitment to your community having a passion for the product itself, and respecting user rights are, are three examples that I often turn to. The thing that, that differentiates us the most from, say, Kickstarter is our 100% delivery rate. So every project that has received funding from us has delivered to their backers. Uh, the money has never gone up in smoke. It's, there's, I'm not worried about scams as much as I am about just mismanagement, and that's never happened. Things have been late occasionally, but that's to be expected somewhat, but even that is, is mitigated heavily. That's the main difference. And that's a huge one, though. Yes. I mean, that's, that's a banner. <laughs> yeah, when, when, you, when you put money down, you expect something in return. To hopefully show yeah. up, even if it's a little late. And, yeah. and, and how about when somebody hits that, that main level, you release the money to them earlier, even if the campaign's not done? Yeah. Can you tell listeners why you do that? Yeah, so everything about crowd supply is designed to 
give creators incentive to execute the plan that they laid out originally. So that plan is, is what we're betting on. And there's a temptation to change that plan if you, say, raise a lot more than you than you originally need or asked for. Um, what we do is as soon as you hit your goal, whether that's the first day or the last day of your campaign, we will release those funds which is usually a few days later after collecting them and, and making sure they're all there. And then we expect you to go off as the creator and execute on that plan, spend that money on your original plan, make that first batch, even if you know that there's 10 times as much coming later. So that's one piece of it. Another is that, that on the backer side, the expectation is set very early on at the moment you, you make the purchase when you're going to receive your item, right? And so there's no, there's no expectation that 100,000 people say, are going to receive the same thing on the same day. That's just not going to happen. And so the production schedule is baked into the into the campaign. And just understanding that detail, the production schedule, is a huge quantum leap from the understanding that, that, uh, that other platforms have about their projects. So Noah, I know you're familiar with CrowdSupply. As someone who provides technical assistance and education to entrepreneurs, helping them understand when they, they don't know what they don't know, can you tell us why what, what Josh is doing over there is so different than, than Kickstarter and why it's, it's, from my standpoint, I'll speak out of class, um, an amazing opportunity for people that make things to really go in with their eyes open before doing a campaign of crowdfunding of any kind? Absolutely. And in, in, in the model of essentially of using prepaid sales as a way to ramp up capital requirements to run a first run or second run of products through that business, it's a, it's a really uh, innovative way to to get funding, in most cases, those businesses don't have access to working capital lines of credit. So, you know, this fills that gap. They don't really need a term loan because it's a short term. So, um, you know, if they can't get a line of credit, what other what other resources are they going to be able to, you know, uncover? This is a really good program for something very niche for manufacturers. I think the other thing that, that I know Josh talks about a lot is um, instant market validation. So, you know, you make something, you think it's cool, but will other people pay for it? Um, having a platform like CrowdSupply, you can get product out there to the masses and find out very quickly whether they will actually do that. Whether it's really going to work or not. And Josh, have you ever had a situation where a, a, a campaign has kind of ramped up strong enough where you've said maybe it's time to kind of cap sales right now with, with a concern that it end up to be too many customers? We've never needed to retroactively do that, not because the sales haven't been there, but because that production schedule is in in place. So that production schedule will say, hey, the first thousand people will get it on this date, the next thousand on this date. And if you're way down the line, you'll know that you'll get it a year now from now. Uh, So that's never been a problem. And and I think uh, we're happy to take sales as long as people understand what they're buying. So you've got that baked in? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what Stephen just said is spot on validation is the thing that i think everyone walks away from their campaign whether it succeeded or failed they're the most happy with that validation the, the capital of course is is necessary but it's not really sufficient uh it's it's a sign of the validation and so that market validation can save you years of work and perhaps mortgages of your, on your house. So you don't need to do those things before finding out that people don't want it. Morgan, do you uh, have any experience with uh, some of the companies that you're working with? Or do you see them 
um, being knowledgeable about crowdfunding platforms, utilizing them when they're in early stage? Yeah, we definitely see some of the folks in my program utilizing crowdfunding campaigns. Um, a lot of them are using uh, Kiva Zip actually um, to do the um, the very small loans, and that is that seems a little more approachable for them. A lot of them don't probably need quite as much as what's probably the average size on crowd supply is. Um, you're looking at probably closer to two thousand to five thousand dollars in terms of these micro enterprises we're working with. So they've 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 definitely um, taken advantage of that product. Um, there is definitely a lot of, of work to be done to get these businesses to a place that they're ready to launch that campaign. And so I think it's important to know that there is some some prep work required. It's not just, you know, I'm going to go online, sign up and make a quick video and, and go and hopefully I'll get funded. So th- there's definitely some, some work that they can work with their business advisors on to support a successful campaign. Yeah, Josh, not to pick on you, but I, I'm sure you'd have loved to have uh, done crowdfunding to raise funds for your own company. Which yep. I, I don't think you did. But nope. No, yeah. nope. So you went the old-fashioned way, going through angels and seed That's funding right. and VCs. Yep. Describe that process. How did, how did that work? What were some of the feedback? Obviously, it's like people were comparing a Kickstarter right mm-hmm. away. I'm sure that they started to eventually get it. Can you talk about who got involved and how and why and what some of the interesting challenges were there? Yeah, so we, we started life as a company, angel-backed. And then we that, so that was three years ago. And then last year, we closed a, a fairly traditional small seed round of just under a million dollars. That was led by the Portland Seed Fund. We had some investors from Bend in the form of Seven Peaks, some investors from the Bay Area and Boston as well. Most of them were were VCs, a few angel investors. And it is somewhat ironic that we weren't crowdfunded, but the fact is that the the <laughs> the, uh, the regulations around equity crowdfunding, which is what that would have been, weren't in place and still, frankly, aren't quite in place yet, I think. But I think all of our investors are really well aligned with us in the sense that they realize that what works, you know, our our job is to help creators be as successful as they can be, and that's our success as well. So... It's it's very much making sure we hit those those three metrics that I talked about the the delivery rate keeping that as close to 100 percent as we can um, the average funding uh, which Morgan you're right it's our average funding is uh, over fifty thousand dollars right now and then being as successful as we can with having as many projects hit that funding as we can and right now I think it's close to sixty percent so helping those creators achieve their hopes and dreams is essentially the same as as furthering our our cause as a company that's the business model right that's the entire business model yeah what uh sorry what uh when it comes to defining investors and what is meant by the term smart money Mm -hmm. can you share with listeners what that really means (laughs) smart money from where i stand smart money is actually everything except for the money right i mean the money is great it's the people behind the money that are going to help you right and how are they going to help you? Are they going to, to go to bat for you? Are they going to make introductions for you? Are they going to help you realize your deficiencies and fill them? All of those things have been incredibly helpful for us. And I, I, all of our investors have, I, I consider to be smart money. So, Noah, you, you work in the world where you know all of these tools exist. If I was king for a day, I would imagine that at some point a bank and Josh or are, are going to kind of figure this out and say, hey, we do loans, but we don't know if people are going to make any money. And you help businesses validate whether people will buy what they're trying to sell. We should we should partner together. We should get together, and then you can tee up the people that we will eventually, you know, give loans to as they scale. What do you What do you think about that? The the future of of how all this kind of comes together is kind of a 
access to capital gumbo. Oh yeah, we we love the gumbo, and and uh, <laughs> there's there's uh, no shortage of ideas and uh, opportunities to connect and and compare notes. And you know, I think as uh, we mentioned earlier in the show, it, it, it's a very dynamic landscape in terms of programs that come online, funding that shows up in town. It gets spent down, it goes away, and that's that's just one of the the aspects of of working this space keeps it interesting. You know, it's it's uh, ever changing. So, Morgan, all of you kind of know each other, have worked together, have collaborated together. Is that is that unique to Portland? I mean, it seems that's a, a Portland thing, but does that happen in Seattle and the Bay Area? Does that or is or is it uniquely that whole Portland experience? I think it's probably a little bit unique. I know I'm sure it exists elsewhere, but we have we've definitely spent a lot of time building out a network um, where we meet as as partners in in um, trying to accomplish the same end goal with our business clients. Um, there's there's groups. Uh, NOAA convenes a lending group. We also convene a small business technical assistance group. So we're always meeting and talking about what the resources are that are out there, finding out new products that exist, new things that are coming online that we can share with our business clients. I think everyone can agree that we're all kind of working together to help improve the situations for the businesses in the community. Great. I'll go, I'll make a stronger statement, I think. I I agree with you, but I'll I'll say that uh, Portland is categorically a friendlier place and more effective place at, at doing business when it comes to small businesses and startups. And like you said, we are working together. And that's not just because we're friendly people. We are. But it, there are many different niches that, you know, CrowdSupply can't fill all of them. Neither can PDC. You know, there are a bunch of different opportunities. And so filling those together, I think, is is the important piece. And people are just very, very generous with their, their knowledge and, and expertise around here, which helps everyone. And cross-referrals. Yeah. And yeah. white, I'm sorry. Lots of cross referrals and yeah. leads generation from partners or peers or colleagues that, you know, it's like, hey, we can't do this deal. It's not really fit for us, but we think it's a better fit for what you guys are doing over there. And you see a lot of that. I think <clears throat> Portland is a place that really is about relationships and collaboration. Other places are much more fast paced. If you go down to the Bay Area and it's like, uh, we're all about to get ours and, you know, they're going on their own lane as opposed to here, you know, we, we go at a little slower pace. And we, it's a smaller place, and we know each other. And we're, there's really, you know, 0.5 degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're able to have these conversations over coffee or beer that are, are really unique. I mean, uh, having crowd supply here is a really unique thing. Having um, the, the country's first ever publicly funded venture firm that's solely investing in women and minorities is as a really unique thing that's never been done by any other city. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's it's because we have this perfect mix of big and small and amazing human capital here that allows these kind of ideas to not only germinate, but but grow and, and take hold. And the DIYers that want to push things to the edge that have never been done before. And, and that's something that, that we really see. Um, you know, The fact that we were founded in Portland is, is somewhat coincidental, except for the fact we all lived here and love it, right? But, uh, but it turned out to be really good for our business because just like we were just talking about with, with the capital side of things, the manufacturing side of things is also quite amazing in Portland. And, and there's a very strong ecosystem that has naturally and organically come about that within 10 miles, uh, you know, not a long bike ride, I can get almost anything made. Uh, 
at least in small, small quantities and sometimes in large quantities. Right. And that's perfect for crowdfunding. Well, I want to thank all three of our guests, Noah, Morgan, Josh. Uh, amazing work. And I uh, look forward to hearing more about what you guys are doing. Thanks for joining us today on Biz 503 on Portland Radio Project. Have a great weekend, everyone.